studied the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, and we're ready now for the book of Esther. And tonight's lesson is coming from Esther chapters 1 and 2, if you want to turn over there. And we're going to look at her as the heroine of honor. Uh, we are talking about restoration all quarter, and that's what links these three books together. It's the restoration of God's people in phases. The first phase through Zerubbabel was a restoration of worship. Second phase through Ezra, a restoration of the law. Third fra uh, the third phase through Nehemiah was the restoration of the city. And uh, Esther's role is a little different. She does it long distance, but she leads the restoration of the honor of people. Uh, so that is, uh, that's going to be the theme every week is honor. And today it's the heroine of honor. Let me remind you a little bit about the timeline here. Uh, this is one of those charts that I'm pretty sure you can't see. I can't see it from here. So why did I put it? It looks a lot better on my computer screen right here. Uh, but let me just explain using this as, as a prop, I guess, uh, that Esther's story comes in between that of uh, Ez, um, Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah. So after Zerubbabel laid the foundation of the temple and the people completed the temple in uh, 516 B.C., Esther becomes queen in Persia. And then it's after that that Ezra returns to uh, Jerusalem and Nehemiah behind him to do their work. So just think of it that way. One way to put it is the book of Esther, if we were going to do this chronologically, would fit between Ezra chapters 6 and 7. Uh, that might help you figure out the timeline that's going on. And we're talking about 479 B.C. Uh, now this occurs, according to Esther chapter 1 verse 1, in the days of Ahasuerus. Ahasuerus was the king of Persia. And the word Ahasuerus is not a name per se, it's more of a title, like Caesar or Pharaoh. That's why you see it applied to various Persian people, rulers, in the Bible. So it makes it a little confusing, but uh, if you look at a line of, uh, I don't guess I put that chart up, but if you look at a list of Persian kings, his work looks like that of Xerxes in the history books. So... As we study Ahasuerus, we're going to think of him as Xerxes I, who would have been the father of the king that worked with Ezra and Nehemiah. So again, we are before Ezra and Nehemiah, somewhere between Ezra chapters 6 and 7. Uh, now Xerxes, or Ahasuerus, was very powerful. Uh, he had a huge kingdom, as you can see on this map here. Uh, he... Uh, there's a lot about him in the history books. Uh, his first major accomplishment was the suppression of an Egyptian revolt in 485 B.C. All these big kingdoms like Assyria and Babylon and Persia, they gained world dominance except for Egypt. Egypt is always the big guy in the south that is always a threat to the empire's in the northern part of the, the world that we look at when we study the Bible. And so it was a pretty impressive thing that he was able to go down and gain territory in Egypt and, and suppress this Egyptian revolt. 
He's best known in history, however, for his failure to conquer the Greek city-states. This is the guy from the movie 300. This is, this is the king. This was Esther's husband. Uh, he assembled perhaps the largest army in ancient history. And he wiped out the Spartans at Thermopylae in 481. But then his navy was defeated at Salamis, and he was finally defeated by the Greeks in Plataea in 479 B.C. So Esther chapter 1 is set in the middle of these two battles, the successful suppression of the Egyptian revolt and the failure to conquer the Greek city-states. That's why you see all this celebration in chapter 1, and then he starts looking really grumpy in chapter 2 and following, because he's, he's on a, a high, politically speaking, in Esther chapter 1, but in chapter 2, as, as I'll explain later, he's coming back from defeat in the Greek city-states. His territory is massive. If you look at chapter 1, verse 1, he ruled from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces, and he sat on his royal throne in Susa, the capital, uh, Hebrew Shushan. It was one of the capitals of Persia. It's modern-day Shush, Iran. So this is a, a very powerful king, and uh, we are, of course, interested in the woman who would become his queen. But before we get to Esther, we've got to do a little setting up of her story by looking at Esther chapter 1. So it starts with a banquet, and there, there are so many feasts and banquets in the book of Esther. I've seen outlines that are built on the feast. You know, it's just feast number one, this is what happens, feast number two. And so you'll see that food plays a big role in the book of Esther. But the first, the first banquet that you see in chapter one is a banquet for the nobles. And if you look at chapter one, verses three and four, you'll see this was a 180-day banquet. Now, can you, can you imagine partying for 180 days? There had to be something going on there besides feasting. And uh, some of the secular historians suggest that there was more than meets the eye to this feast. Herodotus, who you have to be careful about because he was a Greek, and obviously the Greeks and the Persians did not get along during this era. But Herodotus tells us that the king called together an assembly of the noblest Persians to discuss a conquest of Greece. So during this 180 days, according to the Greek historian, he was setting up his plan to expand into Greece and defeat all these city-states that we know now he was unable to conquer. Um, but there was also a lot of feasting, a lot of extravagance. Uh, verse 3 says, The king showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness. So we can already see he's a dangerous ruler because he's not giving glory to God. He is full of pride and arrogance, and he's making the same mistakes that Nebuchadnezzar made before him, and it, it will come back to bite him eventually. But this is the first banquet, this 180-day feast for the officials, for the nobles, in which he was probably planning his conquest of the Greek city-states. But then we see another feast in verse 5. And this was a more modest banquet, lasted only seven days, and uh, it, it was for the citizens. 
Uh, you, see about, you see what it was like in verses 6 and 7, which describes white cotton curtains and violet hangings fattened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars, and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. The wine was said to flow from golden vessels and was in great abundance. So we see here this extravagance and this showiness of Ahasuerus as he wants his kingdom to respect him. Another thing that you see here in this first chapter that will come into play much later is in verse 8. He makes a law. He makes a rule. And it's a, a decree that there should be, quote, no compulsion. Now, it's not that important of a law right here, but it's an opportunity to point out the Persian obsession with laws and statutes. Persia, the Medes and Persians, famously, when they made a law, it could not be revoked. And you're probably thinking of Daniel in the lion's den, right? In Daniel chapter 6, verse 15, uh, the king's advisors tell him uh, to make this law that nobody can pray to his God. And uh, he foolishly gives in. And then Daniel's caught praying to his God. And he has thrown Daniel in the lion's den, even though he's the king and he doesn't agree with it. But you can't revoke the laws of the Medes and Persians. And so we see the first such law in Esther chapter 1, verse 8, where there's this rule at the banquet, no compulsion. And basically what that means is the people were allowed to drink freely. And a lot of these feasts, there would be a speech and there would be a command to drink at this point and then put your goblet down and wait and then drink at this point. And it was all structured. But in this feast for the citizens, it was, a, I guess, a gracious thing on the part of the host to allow them to just drink as freely as they, as they wanted and do whatever they wanted at this, at this party. Now, during this feast, we're introduced to Queen Vashti. Uh, she's a well-known character, even though she's just in part of chapter 1. I think just about everybody has heard about Queen Vashti. She's almost as famous as the queen that bears the title of the book we're studying because of these events that happen. In verse 11, Ahasuerus summons Vashti, his wife, the queen. It says, verse 11, with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. Now, scholars have debated what he was asking her to do. And the text is very subtle and nuanced here. The best guess is when he said, I want you to go out in your royal crown, what he meant was, I want you to go out in only your royal crown. And this is probably why she was so opposed to what he was asking her to do. There are a lot of theories about the motives behind Vashti's refusal, but she refused to obey her husband's summons. She wouldn't come out for his party the way he wanted her to. And here are just a few theories about why she did that. There's the dutiful theory, which is promoted by Josephus, the Jewish historian. He said that out of regard for the laws of the Persians, which forbid the wives to be seen by strangers, she did not go to the king. That doesn't sound like what's happening here, but that is something Josephus put out, and he is a well-known historian, so we put it up there. There's also the inebriation theory. This is a seven-day feast on the heels of a 180-day feast, 
and she might have been fortified by wine to do something this bold. That may have played part of a, a role in this. There's the bitter wife theory that she was possibly seething over her husband's infidelity. We don't know that he was unfaithful to her, but knowing the kind of person he was, it's, it's very likely. So she might have refused to come out because she was angry with him over an affair or something like that. There's the morning sickness theory, which says that possibly she was sick from a pregnancy and didn't feel like it, didn't want to get out. The, some people put together some pretty interesting timelines to show that she may have been pregnant with Artaxerxes, the next king, uh, when these events were, were taking place. But we're most familiar with the moral outrage theory. I mean, if he was asking her to go out and present herself and objectifying her as a woman and treating her as a piece of property that he owned, she rightfully refused his request to go out and do something immodest or lewd or even just beneath her. So she had enough respect for herself not to go. And that, that's the interpretation that I like to go with, not having any other information than what we have. Ahasuer is obviously not a great leader at this point. He might have had a lot of power. He might have had some military successes, but he made some very poor choices. And so in the wake of what happened in Vashti's refusal, we see him make three poor choices that show what kind of a, a leader he is at this stage. And the first poor choice is poor advice. He has seven advisors. Uh, verse 13 calls them wise men. Verse 14, they're referred to as princes. They were called upon to give advice to the king on how to handle this situation with Vashti. And uh, four things are said about them in verses 13 and 14. Uh, number one, they were experts in the Persian laws and customs. So as, you, as we've already talked about, Persian, Persian law, irrevocable, can't be changed. So you need somebody who stays on top of those things. Number two, verse 13 says they were men who knew the times. Now this could mean that they were astrologers, which were pretty important to the religious sensibilities of the Persians in those days. But it could also mean that they were familiar with historical precedents. They knew the histories of, of Persia, and so they gave advice based on precedent. Number three, verse 14 says they saw the face of the king. Ordinarily, uh, most of the subjects were not allowed into the presence of Ahasuerus. There's this famous part in the story of Esther where Esther herself was not allowed to go and see him without being summoned and uh, she risked her life in order to go uh, make a request of him. Well, these advisors were different. They were with him all the time. They were familiar with him. They might even say they were friends of his. And the final thing is they sat first in the kingdom, meaning they were officials of the highest order. Now, it's not bad that he sought advice or that he listened to counselors. The Bible tells us that that's a smart thing to do, that you shouldn't go out on your own and just make decisions without consulting people and getting in input and feedback from the people concerned or from wise people around you. The problem was his choice of counselors. These were not good advisors, and they didn't give him good advice. They were the wrong men to ask. They were like Darius's advisors in uh, Daniel chapter 6, who told him to make this edict about not praying to God. 
The second thing is he, he just didn't think for himself. You know, you can listen to advice, but that doesn't mean you have to follow it. And you see a little weakness in an otherwise very strong man in listening to them and the advice that they give. We'll get to their advice in, in just a moment. But secondly, we see that he also had poor values. Poor advice, poor values. Here is um, the, the view of marriage that his counselors gave him. Look at verse 19 of Esther 1. Let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. Okay, so this is like advice to a husband. Go out and get yourself a better wife. Now, if God joins a man and woman together in marriage, when you say I do, is there any other woman that's a better wife than the one you said I do to? No. I hope you all agree that the wife or the husband that you commit to on the day of your marriage, that's the best person, okay? They're going to they're gonna have flaws. They're not going to be perfect, just like nobody is perfect, but that is the best person. So this advice in verse 19 is terrible advice, and uh, it shows they did not value marriage the way God valued marriage. And then he made the choice of poor methods. Uh, here's what they decided to do when he put his head together with the think tank there in Persia. Uh, a twofold decree. Of course, it had to be a decree, these irrevocable decrees. And the first part of the decree, according to verse 22, is that each man was to be a master in his own house. Okay, so that's an interesting law. You be a master in your own house. Good luck with that, guys. And then, I'm just kidding. And then the second thing is the language of the husband was to be the language of his household. It might have had something to do with, with the cultural uh, blending that was going on there. But that was the methodology that he chose. And it was basically a strategy of domination. Guys, get your wives in line. That was the, the basic instruction that he had for the kingdom of Persia. We're going to show these women who's boss. And that's not the kind of leadership that God wants in homes, in kingdoms, in governments, in churches. He wants servant leadership, right? And Jesus is the chief example of this. The Son of God, the greatest being there is. He came to earth in human form. And Paul writes that beautiful passage in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 and following, about how he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. That's our master. That's our king. He says in Matthew chapter 20, verse 28, that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And we see him washing his disciples' feet in John chapter 13. That's the leadership style that we're to respect and follow. And you see how influential it has been. It changed the whole world. But Ahasuerus is falling back on this tired, old, autocratic style of leadership. Crack the whip, show them who's boss, might makes right, use brute strength to power through this thing. And uh, that's, that shows you a little bit about how bad of a leader he was and the problems that are going to come up later on. So that's chapter one. Now, I will remind you again, there's about a four-year gap between chapters 1 and 2. 
And the Ahasuerus you see in chapter 2 and following is a different man than the one you see in chapter 1. Of course, he's gotten a divorce. He doesn't have a queen. But he's also gone from Persia out to the Greek city-states and had the biggest army history has ever seen and got beat by these Greeks who wouldn't give up their territory. It was a humiliating defeat. And so he's back in Persia now when we come to chapter 2. And uh, if you're interested in this kind of thing, chapter 1 takes place in the third year of his reign. When you get to chapter 2, verse 16, it says we're in the seventh year of his reign. So that's, that's four years there between those two chapters where all this stuff could have happened. He's ready to find a new queen. And this brings us to Esther. So his advisors suggest a harem. Now, according to Herodotus, the Greek historian I was talking about a while ago, the queen was customarily chosen from the seven advisors to the king in Persia. So this, this was interesting to me. They're the ones that make the suggestion of a harem and looking throughout the kingdom for, for daughters uh, to be your queen. Maybe they didn't want any of their daughters to marry Ahasuerus. Am I to tell you a little, another little subtle thing about his character? His closest advisors are changing precedent. And again, this is a, this is a nation that prides itself on irrevocable decrees and customs. They're saying, let's, let's do something different now. Um, instead of taking one of our daughters, why don't we look over the whole country and see who we can find and put them all in a room together and let them be trained. And that's what he decided to do. Uh, they gather together 400 women, Josephus says. We don't know exactly how many there were. And they're put into the custody of this eunuch named Hegai. Chapter 2 also introduces us to Mordecai. Mordecai is described as the great-grandson of a, Benjamin, a Benjaminite who'd been among the captives taken with uh, Jeconiah by Nebuchadnezzar to Babylon. And he had this grandniece named Esther. He had adopted her when her parents died. And Esther is described in chapter 2, verse 7, as having a beautiful figure, and she was lovely to look at. So her looks are what got her in the door of Haggai's harem there in Susa. So after we see her supervision in this harem, we move in the second place to Esther's spirit. And uh, she has this great attitude and wins the favor of the, the eunuch over the harem. And so because of that, verses 8 and 9 tells us that he did three things for her. He immediately provided her with cosmetics and her portion of food. Then he assigned her seven choice maids from the king's palace. And then finally he transferred her to the best place in the harem. But we notice that she had a secret. Look at verse 10. Mordecai gives her instructions. He says, well, I've got to find it. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. She was a Jew. And apparently, anti-Semitism was strong then, as we see it in many other times in history. It seems like after the, the Jewish people were dispersed in the Assyrian and Babylonian captivities, they were never able to gain the respect of the world, and they fought racial prejudice ever since, even to this day. 
And so that's why you see Mordecai advising her, look, don't tell anybody you're a Jew. Keep this secret. We are a persecuted people. And as far as we know, she kept that secret from everyone only Mordecai knew. Then we have her selection. This is in verses 12 and following. The young women from Hegai's harem were permitted to see the king. Verse 12 says, after being 12 months under the regulations for the women. And so you look at that and you wonder, did they really spend 12 months beautifying themselves? I mean, is this what was going on? It kind of, like in chapter 1, we're asking, do we need 180 days to feast? But they were probably also learning royal protocols and how to behave before the king and how things go in the palace. And if you are to be selected as queen, this is how you must behave. All the etiquette rules apply. There was a lot to learn, a lot to study there. Um, but there were also a lot of beauty treatments that they went through. And archaeology has discovered a lot of these, which is pretty interesting. And uh, Esther probably went through this. They found cosmetic incense burners where women would saturate their hair and skin with the pleasant aromas from these burners. Uh, most of the perfumes they used came from plant sources like frankincense, myrrh, nard, saffron, aloes, and calamus. Many of these were indigenous to Persia. And of course, the oil that they would use to infuse these fragrances was olive oil. And these were the fragrances that you read about in Esther. And this is part of the beauty regimen that Esther and all the other women went through in the harem. The plan was at the end of the 12 month time period, each candidate would see the king. And afterwards, she would be considered a concubine and assigned to the second harem. She would never again enter the king's presence unless summoned. But when Esther's turn came, she took nothing with her but what Haggai advised. And that may mean that she didn't need any excessive ornamentation, jewelry, crowns, and things of that nature. She was beautiful enough to just go in with her own physical beauty. And when he saw her, he ended his search and decided that she would be his queen. And this would have happened around December 479 BC. And so Esther is selected. She's queen of Persia. And all of this happens fairly rapidly um, here in Esther chapter 2. There's one last thing in Esther 2 that we need to talk about, and that's Mordecai's report. Um, I'll get to that picture in a moment. Mordecai was an important person, despite his being a Jew and uh, feeling the persecution that he warned Esther about. We know he was because chapter 2, verse 19 tells us that he sat at the king's gate. That phrase, king's gate, is used five times in the book of Esther. So it's an important place. And picture, if you can, uh, something kind of like a courthouse. Um, the gates in the city of uh, Susa were twofold. There was an outer gate and there was an inner gate. And so there's a great deal of space between those for buildings, for courtyards, for um, all kinds of things that can go on related to government business. And so that's what is being referred to here when it's talking about the king's gate. This gate was the official place for the business of the kingdom. And that meant Mordecai was a pretty important person if he was allowed to sit in the king's gate. 
Well, when he's there, he overhears a plot. Look at chapter 2, verses 21 and 22. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of Chronicles in the presence of the king. So Mordecai and Esther saved the king's life. All these things are, are setting up the story. We, it, Esther is such a well-told story. It, it goes back, it harkens back to things that happened in the very beginning that you may have forgotten on first reading, and you realize, oh, that's why that detail's in there. We need it later. So this is a very important thing about Mordecai. You'll also notice the mention of being hanged on a gallows. And that's why I had this picture. This is a, an inscription from Persia, and I doubt you can really see what's going on there. You don't really want to see this in detail, because this is a depiction of what they call the gallows. Now, when I hear gallows, what I think of is something that people are hanged on, like in the Old West. Some kind of wooden framework uh, and a noose hanging down, and that was a means of execution in a lot of places, including, you know, the, the United States. That's not what the Persian gallows was. The Persian gallows was just a pole with a sharp end on it that they impaled people alive onto. Just a horrible, horrible method of execution. Now, of course, they were interested in the pain that it would bring. They saw it as a deterrent to anybody passing by. Hey, we don't want to plot to assassinate the king because we don't want that to happen to us. But also, it had something to do with their religion. Another thing Ahasuerus did for Persia is he brought them out of pagan religion into something, uh, something a little different. It was a monotheistic religion around a one god. It was a false god named Ahura, and uh, the religion's called Zoroastrianism. So Zoroastrianism had some strange ideas, and one is the sacredness of the earth. Let's see if I can get this right. It was soil, water, fire, and something else. Could not come into contact with a dead body. So if you start thinking about this, you can't kill anybody through fire. Fiery furnace is out, right? You can't kill anybody... Um, and let their body fall on the ground. Uh, you can't drown them. So how do, you, how do you kill somebody? And this is where this gallows got invented. It was a way around contaminating the soil, contaminating the earth with, with a dead body. So they would hang it on the gallows and just leave it up there until it was taken away by the elements or the wild animals or whatever. It was just a cruel, awful, torturous thing. It also was the beginning of crucifixion. This is an early form of crucifixion. The Romans borrowed crucifixion from the Persians. The Persians invented it. The Romans turned it into something for their own uses. The Persians were trying to respect their religion. 
The Romans, they didn't care about contaminating the ground. They used it to display their power. And so this gallows we're looking at here will come up, come up again in a very interesting twist in the book of Esther that I'm sure you already know. But then it also casts this long shadow all the way to Calvary and reminds us of what our Lord went through for, for us so that we could be saved from our sins. That's where we're going to stop uh, tonight as we're introduced to all these characters. There's one more important one to be introduced to, but we've, we've met Vashti, we met Ahasuerus, we met Esther, Mordecai, and uh, we'll pick up with her story next week. Anybody got any questions? Or comments you want to make? We covered a lot of ground there in a short period of time. One thing I meant to mention about Esther, it's the only book in the Bible that doesn't contain the name of God. God is not mentioned in the whole book. And uh, I think it was Matthew Henry, it's one of the old commentary writers who said, if his name isn't there, his finger is. Which I think is a great way to put that the providence of God is seen all through that, and that's why Esther is here. Another thing I meant to mention by way of introduction is this is the 17th book of the Old Testament, and of course there are a lot of other books to come. There are 39 total. This is just number 17, but when you're reading the book of Esther, you're reading the end of the historical period of the Old Testament. Uh, the first 17 books tell the history. The next five books of poetry tell the... Um, tell the human experiences within that history. And then the last books of prophecy, the major and minor prophets, they show God's experiences through the prophets during that history. But everything that follows Esther occurs within the time frame of those first 17 books. So we're at the end of the history of the Old Testament. After the book of Esther, there's about, you know, you have Malachi's time, which comes afterwards. And then you'll have about 400 years of silence before Jesus is born, and we have the New Testament events. All right, that's everything for tonight. Hope, uh, hope you're looking forward to studying the rest of the book of Esther as we continue this.